Well, yesterday I had the, the pleasure of preaching from early in the morning till late in the afternoon at Cedar Springs to one of our sister churches, a, a men's group, actually two churches combined. I, I did a little test. You know, sometimes pastors work their congregations. They try to figure out uh, who the audience is. And in this case, I knew very few of the, the gentlemen there. Actually, I only knew two of them. And so uh, as I stood before this, this gathering of men, I began by saying this. Dobre utra. And when 70% of the men responded back audibly, Dobre utra, I knew that I was standing before a group of Russian Christian men. And so once I knew that I was on safe territory, I, I yelled out, Slava Boga! Glory to God! At which point they responded with, Slava Boga! Um, in one of the messages, I, I shared about a friend of mine who committed a crime several years ago, a man who I served on a, a church staff with. And he was convicted and sent to jail, did time, paid some very expensive fines. And in sharing that story, one of the Russian gentlemen came up to me, a man by oh, probably 25, 26 years of age. And he said, oh, pastor, he says, I, I can relate to your friend. I says, what do you mean? And he says... Uh, my dad was involved in ministry, and he, he didn't give much time for the family. And as a result, I rebelled, city of Seattle, and I got involved in gangs and committed crimes and ended up uh, convicted to 25 years in jail. And he said it was by God's grace that somehow I was, I was set free within about a year and a half, and the gospel gripped this young man's heart, and now he serves as a deacon at his Russian-speaking church. And that's, that's the power of the gospel. It is the power of the gospel. And one of the things that became very uh, evident to me rather quickly was that this is a group of men who were like sponges, they had their Bibles open, their notebooks were open, their pens were ready to write, and they, they were literally digesting the Word of God. They were consuming the Word of God like sponges. And so I have to be honest with you, if that's the framework I come with today, I'm anticipating a, a, a group of Christ followers who will be like sponges, not like stones. And, you know, there, there are two approaches in the Christian life. You can have a heart of a, a sponge and receive the Word of God and benefit from the Word of God. Or you can also have a heart of stone and receive absolutely nothing from it. The Word of, word of God says this in Isaiah chapter 55. My word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return empty from me. But it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and I shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. May that be said of us this morning. We join me in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you uh, for, for these men yesterday and the, the inspiration and the encouragement they were to me. I pray that your word would continue to do a, a mighty work in their lives, that they would continue to serve you faithfully. And I pray the same for our family here at Christ Fellowship. That today we would be like sponges, that we would uh, taste and see that God is good, that we would be receptive to the truth of God's word, that we would be listening, that we would be assimilating the truth of the word of God by the power of the spirit. Now we invite you to come, God, and, and do a, a great and miraculous work here in our midst. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ was betrayed by Judas in the garden. He was bound. 
He was arrested by a, a band of soldiers and finds himself being questioned now by the high priest. And on this day, Jesus was not only betrayed by Judas, his friend Peter, who had walked with him and communed with him and ate with him and joked with him. They had spent time together. Now his friend Peter denies him not once and not twice, but three times. And so with the rooster crowing in his ears, Jesus Christ is led to the house from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. And Pilate, who we all know very well, asked the perennial question of not only his generation, but each and every generation. And here is, here is his question. It goes like this. What is truth? What is truth? And when he asks that question, it is loaded with assumptions. When someone asks what is truth, they're asking, what is ultimate reality? Who am I? Where am I going? How can I find the answers to the very deepest questions in my life? And when someone asks the question, what is truth? At the end of the day, they were really asking, who is the final authority? Who has the final say? And many throughout Western civilization... And the history of Western thought have sought to answer Pilate's very important question, what is truth? In fact, I want to transport you only for a moment back to the Garden of Eden, where Eve is faced with two competing truth claims. One of those claims is true, and one of those claims is false. One of those claims is authentic. One of those claims is a lie from the pit of hell. I want you to listen to John Frame's explanation of what transpired in the garden. He said, God told Eve that she would die from eating the fruit. There's a truth claim. Satan, on the other hand, told her she would not die, but she would become like God. Eve should have disregarded Satan's claim at the outset. Instead, she asserted her own right, her own right to make the final judgment. Satan's claim presupposed God did not exist as the ultimate determiner of truth and meaning. And therefore, in the mind of Eve, there was no ultimate truth. Does that sound familiar? That's the culture in which we find ourselves. Now turn your attention from the Garden of Eden to the days of the Greek philosophers. We begin with the sophists. The sophists, you see, did not believe in absolute truth. They were the relativists of the day. They were like many in our culture who said something like this, you can go ahead and believe that uh, a, a, a marriage between a man and a woman is the only valid marriage. You can believe that. That's fine. But that's not for me. And that is the, the error, the sin of relativism. One famous sophist, Protagoras, said this, and this will sound very familiar to, to your contemporary postmodern ears. He said, man is the measure of all things. Socrates believed that everyone could find the truth, and see if this sounds familiar, by looking within. 
You find the truth by looking within. It was Socrates who developed the slogan, Know Yourself or Know Thyself. His student Plato, who lived over 400 years before the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is important to recognize, he greatly struggled in this so-called quest for truth. And he reportedly said, quote, It may be that someday there will come forth from God a word, a logos, who will reveal all mysteries and make everything plain. Think about that. 400 years before the birth of Jesus, this pagan philosopher Plato said that it may be that one day there will come forth from God a logos, a word, who will reveal all mysteries and make everything plain. Other schools of philosophy have embraced a a, a mindset of if it feels good, do it. This is the philosophy of Stoicism. Others have bought the lie that truth is determined by what works. That is the lie of pragmatism. And many in our day, our postmodern age, believe there is no absolute truth. And so Pilate's question to the postmodern thinker is totally nonsensical. What is truth? The response is there is no truth. Nothing, one writer says, is certain. Nothing is absolute. Aristotle came to the table and said, man, by nature, desires to know. And so I believe we all have a little pilot within our hearts. We all seek to know and to answer the question that Pilate raised, what is truth? Zoran Kierkegaard, a Danish philosopher, said, there is something missing in my life. And I want you to think with me about this, this quote by Kierkegaard, because I think it's important. He says, there is something missing in my life. I need to understand my purpose in life to see what God wants me to do. And this means that I must find a truth which is true for me, that I must find that idea for which I can live and for which I can die. And so as we think about our lives, people search for truth continually. They search for truth in the academic disciplines, fields as, such as science or philosophy or psychology or history. Once again, people seek after truth in relationships. They look for truth in their careers. And so the title of the message this morning is Born to Bear Witness. Born to bear witness. And as we look in a moment at at John chapter 18, I I want you to examine with me by way of introduction the, the many facets or the motivations for the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, even as we move into the Christmas season here shortly. In Luke chapter 10, we read that, From the angels, they say that Jesus will bring good news of great joy that will be for all the people and announce peace on earth. In Luke 2, Simeon and John the Baptist proclaimed that Jesus brought salvation to the earth. Simply put, the Bible tells us that Jesus came to proclaim good news. Jesus himself in Luke chapter 4 says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Another reason for the birth of the Lord Jesus appears in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, where we read that the Lord Jesus was born because he was on a deliverance mission. He was on a rescue mission. He came to set the sinners free. And John the Apostle said he came, and I love this, to destroy the works of the devil. He came to destroy the works of the devil. Additionally, Jesus came to heal the sick. He came to raise the dead. He came to comfort the afflicted. And he came to afflict the comfortable. But I want to fast forward now three decades after the birth of Jesus and his life on earth before he died on the cross for sinners. I want us to look at the very interesting exchange that transpires between Jesus and Pontius Pilate. So please turn with me to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, and if you would be so kind while you're turning to John chapter 18... To stand to your feet as we read verse 33 and following. This is the word of the Lord. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus. And he said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you or about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say, I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to me. And Pilate said to Jesus, what is truth? May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. The question that I pose to you this morning is why was Jesus born? And the answer to this important question is actually found in the title of the message. And that is to say, Jesus was born by his own admission to bear witness to the truth. I want to have you look with me at verse 27, or rather 37, and pay close attention to that word witness. And you'll see it in your notes and you'll see it on the screen as well. This is the word that comes from the Greek word martyreo. And if you think about that word martyreo, and recall that I have one of the famous martyreos in the flyleaf of my Bible, what word does that sound like in the English? It's the martyr. It's the martyr. When Jesus says he comes to bear witness to the truth, this means that we, or he rather, affirms something that a person has seen or experience. So think about that. The one who has existed from all eternity. He doesn't have a beginning. He doesn't have an end. He has come to bear witness, to, to testify to something that he has seen or experienced. When a witness, you see, is called to testify in a courtroom, every judge expects 
several things from that witness. Every judge expects that that witness is credible. That is, that the testimony which is presented in the courtroom is both believable and trustworthy. Additionally, the judge expects that the witness is a person who is competent, a person who can think, a person who has had first-hand experience and will provide accurate and credible testimony. And finally, as you know, every judge expects a witness to have a deep appreciation and commitment to the truth. How credible now? Think of it. How credible is this witness who stands before Pilate? What has Jesus Christ seen What has Jesus Christ experienced? How truthful is he? And so to answer those questions, look with me at the credentials of the witness. Verse 37, then Pilate said to him, you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king for this purpose. I was born and for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And so take a moment with me and examine the the credentials of the witness. First, I want you to see that the Lord Jesus Christ, the witness, is eternal. This witness is eternal. In John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus told the religious leaders of the day, Truly, truly, before Abraham, I am. And we have examined this passage in great detail in previous messages. But to remind you, when when Jesus said, before Abraham, I am, that's written in a specific nuance in the Greek where he means this. He means that before Abraham, I am, I have existed from all eternity. I don't have a beginning. I exist today on the day I utter these words and I exist unto all eternity. You see, that's a claim that no other witness can make. That's a claim that that we can scarcely comprehend. Jesus is eternal. He has no beginning. The Bible says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Revelation chapter 1 verse 8. Secondly, I want you to see that Jesus is not only the eternal witness, and you'll remember that one of the qualifications for a witness is is they're going to explain what they have seen and experienced. Well, the second thing you need to recognize is the witness stood face-to-face with the Father. Would you hold your finger in John 18? And I recall the, the very first of 71 messages we're up to now in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We explored this together. In John chapter 1... Verse 1, the Apostle John says, In the beginning was the Word. By the way, keep in mind Plato's words. That one day, God will send a what? A Word. A Word. And then John the Apostle says, In the beginning was the Logos, the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was Theos, God. Wow, this is a credible witness who stands before Pilate. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the eternal God, the universe. He stood face to face with God the Father. Verse 2 says, he was in the beginning with God. That preposition with means face to face. 
In the beginning, he was face to face with God. Third, a reality that we have seen in weeks past, that this witness is also a member of the Trinity that has been in fellowship with the Father and the Spirit from all eternity. John seventeen twenty four. Father, Jesus prays, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And so I want you to see this morning that as Jesus stands before Pilate, Jesus came. Jesus was born to bear witness to the truth. Can you imagine a more qualified witness than one who is eternal, than one who stood face to face with the Father? Pilate says to Jesus, so you're a king. Jesus responds, so, and I love this, so you say that I am a king, which is to say, I am a king. And so I want you to look secondly with me at the credentials now of this king. We've seen the credentials of the witness. Now look at the credentials of the king. And there are many. Please see that Jesus Christ is a loving king. I want you to do an exercise with me this morning and hold your finger in John chapter 18. And we're going to look at a multitude of Bible passages together. Look with me at the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11 and we'll read in verses 28 and 29. Here the Lord Jesus Christ provides the first credential in this list of his kingship. Namely, he is a loving king. Verse 28, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest. For your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Whether Pilate realizes or not, he's standing before a king who is altogether loving. Now look with me at John chapter 3, verse 17. And as we turn to John chapter 3, verse 17, we'll see that the king is not only a loving king, but he is indeed a saving king. A saving king. Here's what John 3.17 says. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. The father didn't send Jesus to condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him. In Luke 19.10 we read that the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Once again, Jesus came. Jesus was born to bear witness to the truth. But he came On a rescue mission, he came to seek and save the lost. Third, I want you to see that Jesus Christ is and was a ruling king. Turn with me to Colossians chapter chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. And the Apostle Paul, as he unpacks this wonderful treatment on, on Christology, the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ, says in verse 13 that he, that is, The Father has delivered us, that is the followers of Christ, from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
whether Pilate realizes it or not, the Lord Jesus Christ is a loving king. He is a saving king. He is a ruling king. Number four, I want you to see that he is also a forgiving king. That the Lord Jesus is a forgiving king. That's what we've seen in verse 14. That in whom, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, we, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I want you to see fifth that the Lord Jesus is a creator king. He is a creator king. And continue to think about this exchange between Pilate and Jesus. Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? And before him stands the one who created him. Before him stands the one who who created the band of soldiers, the angry mob who would crucify him. Before him stands the one, as we will see in a moment, is the one who granted him and gave him breath. He indeed is the creator king. Colossians 1.16, For by him, that is Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. This is in no way a political statement, but I heard, I read yesterday that President-elect Trump, that sounds strange, President-elect Trump will appoint, I'm not going to name the person, but it's a person who is a, a lightning rod figure in one of the positions that will oversee matters that pertain to the environment. And the writer of the article was attacking this woman vehemently. And the main reason that this writer attacked her vehemently is she doesn't even believe in evolution. <laughs> I thought to myself, wow, what a, what a tragedy. <laughs> She believes that Jesus, the second member of the Godhead, is the creator king. Sixth, I want you to see that the man who stands before Pilate is a sovereign king. Turn to the book of Hebrews, please. Hebrews chapter 1. And in Hebrews chapter 1, we read this Absolutely stunning portrayal of Jesus. Hebrews 1 verse 3. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. That is God the Father. And the exact imprint of his nature. And he, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. You see, this is a sovereign king who stands before Pilate. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 15 says that he will display at the proper time, he who indeed is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Seventh, please see with me that the one who stands before Pilate is fully God. He is fully man. He is fully God. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus himself said it as we studied John chapter 10 verse 30. He said, I and the Father are one. Over and over and over again, Jesus gives claim to his deity. And then finally, I want you to see with me that 
this king who stands before Pilate is the, the very embodiment of truth. The word truth means that which is genuine. It means that which is authentic. Uh, you would put it this way. Truth is the real deal. It's the real McCoy. And truth, you see, always exposes falsehood. We have the truth and we have the lie. And there is no in-between. There is the truth and there is the lie. Truth, you see, corresponds to reality. In addition, and this is not in your, your study notes, I want you to see for a moment. When we consider the witness of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we've considered many things thus far, I want you to see the witness of the apostles for a moment concerning the truthfulness of Jesus. And if you would just take your attention and focus it now on these particular passages. For instance, the, John the Apostle says this in John 1.14, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Three verses later, the Apostle John said, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. We've already seen how Paul the, Apol Paul the Apostle rather, addresses the unique claims and the deity and the authority and the sovereignty of Jesus Christ, including his truthfulness. Peter the Apostle in 1 Peter 1.22 says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from the heart. The list goes on and on. But then there is the witness of revelation concerning the truthfulness of Jesus Christ. In Revelation 15.3, for instance, we read this, And they sing the song of Moses the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. And Pilate has the audacity to ask Jesus, What is truth? There are claims that Jesus Christ himself makes concerning his truthfulness. We have established this morning and many other times in our study in the Gospel of John that Jesus is God. The scripture tells us that God cannot lie. He must always tell the truth. In fact, in John eight fourteen, Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from, and I know where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. That was not addressed to Pilate in particular, but that could have just as easily been addressed to Pilate. And then you'll remember in John seventeen three, where Jesus prayed in the high priestly prayer, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And of course, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except through me. And so the, the loving, saving, forgiving king stands before Pilate. Pilate stands before the, the very embodiment of truth. Truth itself. And Pilate is one who, who carries a great deal of authority. And the Roman world stands before his creator, his ruler, and the one who is sovereign over all things. The irony 
as we observed in Veritas this morning, is this, that Jesus Christ, as the creator, he is the one who granted the very breath to Pilate, who said, what is truth? Are you kidding me? Do you see the irony of that? I want to apply this truth in a very unique way to our hearts and minds this morning. And I want to apply it in two very specific ways before we're dismissed. And the first is this, and we see it in verse 37 of John chapter 18. And that is that everyone who is of the truth, everyone who is of the truth listens to Jesus. Now think about this for a moment. What was Pilate's response? How did Pilate respond to the Lord Jesus Christ? And we are told very little. We, we see the exchange. We see the words of Jesus. We see the words of Pilate. But we are, we are forced to move into other sections of Scripture to see what Pilate's heart is really like. And I would submit to you that Pilate's response involved at least three very important elements. I would submit to you that first, Pilate suppressed the truth of God's existence. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the Bible says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is what is happening in the exchange between Pilate and Jesus. Pilate suppresses the truth. It looks like he's interested in the truth when he says what is truth, but he is in all reality suppressing the truth like much of our nation is doing right now. Suppressing the truth of the existence of God. Second, I would submit to you that Pilate Exchange the truth of God for a lie. Romans one twenty five says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed and blessed forever. It's interesting because in Romans chapter 1 verse 22, Paul says claiming to be wise, they became fools. One of the Russian translations of that verse, which I love, says this. Claiming to be wise, they became crazy. Cuckoo. Right? This is what's happening with Pilate. He suppresses the truth of God's existence. He exchanges the truth of God for a lie like much of America is doing right now. And finally, I would submit to you that Pilate refused to listen to the truth. I don't want to be crude, but think about this. The man who could smell the breath of the embodiment of truth suppressed the truth of God's existence and exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and he refused to listen to the truth. Once again, Jesus says, the reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God, I want you to remember this morning that every unconverted person responds in the same way that Pilate responded. The only difference is Pilate shows more interest than most unconverted people. 
Because in our culture, many people are utterly unwilling to ask the question, what is truth? They turn their backs on Jesus. They turn their back on the truth. And so what about you? Where do you stand this morning? You see, some people ignore the quest for truth. They don't think that truth is attainable. Some people are asking the right questions, but they have little time for the answers. They are preoccupied by other pursuits. They're preoccupied with their idols and their toys. Some people are in a desperate quest for the truth, and they end up embracing the, the lies of the Dalai Lama, the lies of Joseph Smith, or a host of other religious figures who reject Jesus Christ as the final standard of truth. Some people are asking the right questions, which I really like, but they don't like the answer they receive, and so they willingly turn from the truth as Pilate turned from the truth. Some people have moved beyond Pilate. Instead of asking what is the truth, they ask questions like this. Does it work? Is it relevant? Is it practical? And my favorite, how does it make me feel? Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Everyone who listens to the truth listens to Jesus. There's a second application point. We recognize that everyone who is of the truth listens to Christ, but we also recognize that everyone who does not listen to the truth rejects Christ. You see, it doesn't matter what the motivation is. It doesn't matter what culture a person is a part of. The truth is that everyone who refuses to listen rejects the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you turn with me to Romans chapter 2? Romans chapter 2. And while you're turning to Romans chapter 2, give me the liberty for a moment to read from the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John chapter 3, verse 36. John the Apostle says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Over in Romans chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says, But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. You see, that's the bad news. That is horrible news if you're here and you have not yet surrendered to Jesus. The good news that I have the pleasure of presenting today is that Jesus came to save his people from wrath and fury. And if you're a Christian this morning and you've been walking with Jesus for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 plus years, this is a reality that we should never tire of hearing. That Jesus Christ came to set the captives free. He delivered us from the wrath of Almighty God. He delivered us from the power of sin and the penalty of sin. Can you believe it? Wow. Remember Plato? 400 years before the birth of Jesus, he says it may be that someday there will come forth from God a word 
who will reveal all mysteries and make everything plain. Jesus Christ is that word. He is the Logos. Christ has revealed the mystery of the gospel. He has clearly revealed God the Father. Christ is the answer to all of your questions. The quest for truth ends as we pursue the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the answer to all of your loneliness. Christ is the only one who can manage and free you and resolve your unresolved guilt. Simply put, Jesus Christ was born in order to bear witness to the truth. Why? Truth is found in Jesus alone. You must remember to surrender to Christ in order to find forgiveness and meaning and eternal life. Sinclair Ferguson says the truth is that unless the significance of what Christ did at the first Christmas shakes us, we can scarcely be said to have understood much of what it means or who he really is. I've shared with some of you that last week I read a book by a a rather famous journalist. And the title of the book is Confessions of a Secular Jesus Follower. I had to read it. (laughs) It drew me in. And in a nutshell, what this very well-intentioned author is saying is this, I love the ethic of Jesus. Love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. Care for people. Be kind to the poor. Help people. Be benevolent. Be a philanthropist. Follow the example of Jesus who loved people. But the only problem with the author's contention is this. He rejects and repudiates the deity of Christ. He rejects the miracles of Christ. He rejects the virgin birth. He rejects the substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in a couple hundred pages of this book, as I read this, here's what stands out to me the most. He said that those things that he repudiates, they just don't move him. Look what Ferguson says. The truth is that unless the significance of what Christ did at the first Christmas shakes us or moves us, we can scarcely be said to have understood much of what it means or who he really is. And so as well-intentioned as this writer is, and I, I have to say it just as a footnote, he is a great writer. I thoroughly enjoyed reading this book. The problem is... He's not following the biblical Jesus. He's not following the Jesus that we know and embrace and in love in Scripture. And so I want to challenge you today. Don't turn your back on the truth like Pilate. Pilate judged Jesus before he went to the cross. But Christ will return to judge Pilate and everyone else who rejects him. Don't be fooled by a cheap imitation. The truth today stands directly before you as Jesus Christ makes these wonderful claims. For he says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. This morning, I want to ask this closing question. And it's a very simple question. The question is, 
Are you listening? Are you like a sponge this morning, like my Russian friends? Or are you like a stone where the truth of the word of God just just hits your stony heart and nothing penetrates it? Are you like a, a sponge who who tastes and sees that the Lord is good? Or you say like Pilate, that's not relevant. That doesn't meet my felt needs. And the truth of the matter is the Lord Jesus Christ cuts through every one of our felt needs. He helps us with every area of our lives. He strengthens us as we raise our children. He strengthens grandparents as they help to develop their grandchildren. He helps us on the job. He strengthens us every step of the way. For I have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. Who died and gave himself for me. It is no longer I that lives, but Christ who dwells within me. So the question this morning, how's your hearing? Do you need a hearing aid? And please forgive me for those of you who already have physical hearing aids. Did you hear that? How is your spiritual listening these days? How is the word of God communicating to you? As I challenged the man in Ironman just a few weeks ago to be reading the word of God daily. And you know what? Ladies, they're doing it. I'm checking. They're doing it. As you read the word of God, what's the word of God saying to you? Or you just walk away and you're untouched by the truth of the word. May the Holy Spirit touch his people in miraculous ways so that we would be continually transformed by the renewing of our minds. And as I said in Veritas this morning, to use a Pilgrim's Progress analogy, all of us who are Christ followers are on the same path. And we are making our way to the celestial city. And we will struggle and wrestle with sin all the way to the celestial city. When you run into a fellow pilgrim who says, oh yeah, I don't wrestle with sin anymore. You know who you're talking to. You're talking to either a liar or someone who has deceived him or herself. Because we are in the sanctification process where we battle sin. Romans chapter 8 says we mortify sin by the power of the spirit all the way to the celestial city. So once again, how's your spiritual hearing? Are you listening? And I can assure you that as you listen and that as you make practical the word of God in your life, he will change you. You will be metamorphosized. You will be transformed. Your friends will see a difference in you as you pay attention closely to the truth and the one who came to bear witness to the truth. We pray with me. Now, Father, I pray that we would be good listeners. God, sometimes because we are sinful, we have either willingly or unwillingly placed some kind of wax in our ears where we refuse to hear the truth. And I pray for each person here that we would uh, pay careful attention to your word. 
that by your spirit you would get rid of the wax, that you would get rid of any obstacle that gets in the way of the word of God doing a miraculous transforming work. We confess, as we do so often in this place, that it is only through the power of the gospel that we can live as you have called us to live. It is only the power of the gospel that frees us from the power of sin and the penalty of sin. And so would you be so kind to uh, allow us to see the example of Pilate, the negative example of Pilate? And I pray that no one in this place turns from the truth as Pilate turns from the truth. May we be good spiritual listeners and may the results blow us away. May our neighbors recognize it. May our spouses recognize it. May our children recognize it. May the men and women we work with each day recognize it, that we are a people who pay close attention to the truth of Jesus, the eternal one, the creator, the sovereign one, the one who stands face to face with the father and who ordains everything that comes to pass. Thank you for these things on this day in Jesus name. Amen. We have a scripture for the benedict. I have it right here. It's in the book of Jeremiah. But I, I, I thought of a quote from the Puritans that I'm going to use instead. And it goes like this. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. Do you know you can hear a message from the word of God and this half the congregation can say, I got nothing. And this half the congregation can go. Wow, that's incredible. I don't get it. How can that happen? The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. It's our responsibility to have hearts that are soft and pliable. And like my Russian friends, they're like sponges. May 100% of us have hearts that are like sponges, that we are literally melted by the truth of God's word. We give him the glory. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for a, a group of Christ followers who desire to have hearts that are pliable and soft and willing to be uh, revolutionized by the spirit of God, which is mediated through the word of God. God, I pray that as we walk down this path together, that you would do mighty things that, uh, Bridges of love would be established, that ministry would take place, that ministry would happen not only here on this campus, but it would happen throughout our community. And God, I want to give special thanks for uh, the many people and at the very top of the list, uh, Carmel Cox, for her wonderful work across the street with the team of people who have helped her to prepare for a very special evening tonight. And so I pray that our, our hearts would be ready and willing to give thanks and also to eat some really good food. So we give thanks in advance. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.